Episode 42, the title can mean only one thing. Yes, it is a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Oh, and I didn't bring my towel. Oh, well, don't panic. Chris and the Badger. Mornings. All right, let's go, let's go, let's get up. Or whenever you happen to listen to it, I guess. On selfhosted.show. Oh, we're bringing that back, are we? Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm going in with this. I, I love this. We are. The week, I think you and I would have a great AM morning show. We need to lean into that a bit more, yeah. We do. We'd be doing the traffic on the 15s, and uh, we'd also be taking people's tech questions and uh, discussing the news of the day. And we'd have a movie review segment and a TV review segment. I know you're going to give us a, a, a surprise <laughs> TV review <laughs> later in the show. Yeah. I might have interrupted an interview with an impromptu movie review. Yes. <laughs> It just makes me laugh. I love it, Alex. <laughs> but, you know, I think we'd have a great morning show. And we'd have our friends on, right? Like, we'd call Alan on and we'd give him a hard time about FreeBSD. That'd be pretty great. Yes. That would be rather awkward at the moment, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we'd ask him if he's got WireGuard set up, so that way we could do, <laughs> we could do it over at WireGuard. <laughs> uh, we should put a link in the show notes if people don't know what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, quick too long didn't read. WireGuard nearly got merged into the BSD kernel, and the code was of questionable quality. So if you have any questions about that, there is a link in the show notes to Jim Salter's Ask Technica breakdown of this. You will probably come away rather salty with BSD, just full warning. So um, yeah, enjoy that. But in the meantime, I want to say thanks to a Cloud Guru for sponsoring this here episode. They are the learning in cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired. Get learning at a cloudguru.com. But speaking of that post over at Ars Technica, you also had a new post over at Ars Technica. And this is a brilliant one. How to achieve smart home nirvana or home automation without a subscription. Also very clever. Were you stuck between two titles, Alex? And congratulations also on your first post at Ars Technica. Thank you. Yes, that was rather a life box ticked last week. It was a war of two titles, wasn't it? It was actually, I was working with their editors and they had about six titles to choose from. So we ended up picking two halves of two different titles that didn't belong together and then kind of like munging them together. Wow. Could you imagine having people like help us come up with titles? Like you and I like have to like call each other up after the show and be like, oh, what are we going to call this one? We completely forget. We walk away and don't even title the show. <laughs> we do yeah, all the time. <laughs> Hey, so did you see in the news this week that uh, NVIDIA have finally seen sense and unlocked their GPU drivers for pass-through? I did see this in the news. I didn't go too far into it because I figured I'd pick your brain. This must be a shot in the arm for virtualization. I'd say so, yeah. To recap, you know, the high level of why this is a big deal, NVIDIA previously locked down their consumer graphics cards from being, air quotes, supported uh, on GPU pass-through. So they would show an error code 43, an infamous error code 43 in the Windows device manager rather than loading and, and just working as normal. So what you would have to do is hide the fact that the VM was running as a VM from the VM, which has some minor performance implications, uh, only only minor. Um, but what this does from, from NVIDIA is it basically says, yeah, okay, guys, cool, go ahead and take our consumer-level graphics cards, pass them through to you know guests and do gaming and what have you, and you know, go go nuts. I don't even know if I have a rig to try this on these days, Alex. Have you had a chance to try this? I don't actually run pass-through very much these days. Uh, I ended up 
basically giving up because you know you you and I talked about this a long time ago on Linux Unplugged 308. And we talked about all the different rigmarole that surrounds PCI pass-through. And all of that still applies, even with this NVIDIA news. All of that still applies. Um, so you're going to need a way of switching your monitor inputs, of switching your keyboard and mouse inputs, and all that kind of stuff. And I have a 144 hertz gaming monitor in front of me here. And trying to find a KVM switch that can support that and Thunderbolt from my MacBook Pro, it, it, it just it's just a pain in the bum. So I ended up uh, just dual booting these days you know i when i want to do some windows stuff i reboot and when i want to do some linux stuff i reboot and it's 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 fine it's a bit of a pain but it's fine so yeah there is a line where you have to go how much is it worth virtualizing versus just dual booting i i totally get that that's a line i don't really often cross like i'm legitimately at a loss of of even i don't know why i'd install windows right now i don't think i've i don't think i've installed windows I definitely haven't installed it in 2021 and I don't know if I installed it. I must have at least installed it once in 2020, but maybe that was it. I really have over the years just sort of, I'm not, this is not a brag. I just, it's because I have in other places used Macs for special tools that other people probably would have used a Windows box. So it's not like I have some superpower, but it's just, I have over the times just kind of migrated completely away from Windows. Yeah, the only things I really use it for is Fusion 360, uh, so 3D modeling for my, my printing stuff which I can also do on the Mac as well. So I don't really need Windows there. I use it for Blue Iris, as we often talk about, on a separate system. I could see that. In terms of the desktop, yeah. I mean, VS Code takes care of a lot of my coding stuff. WSL 2 takes care of a lot of the SSH type stuff. And the new Windows terminal is actually quite nice. So, I mean, I spend a lot more time in Windows than I think I admit to myself these days, even though it doesn't really feel like Windows anymore because they've basically shoehorned Linux onto the side of it. <laughs> okay, I feel like there's also an elephant in the room this week. You and I have talked about Ubiquity Gear a bit on this show, and they have been in the news in a bad way. Some serious security um, potential leaks, I guess. According to someone that Brian Krebs spoke to on his blog, he writes that a cyber criminal gained administrative access to Ubiquity's AWS databases via stolen credentials uh, perhaps like an employee's LastPass account, it looks like, and then got root admin access, that's what they say, to the AWS accounts, S3 buckets, application logs, secrets for single sign-on cookies, all databases, including databases that include user credentials. Um, there's even, according to some people who've come forward, supposedly been backdoor software that they found that Ubiquity IT staff found um, that the that the situation is so serious that certain people have been fired. There's there's a lot going on, and I'm wondering how you feel, somebody who's I think running a fair amount of their gear. I certainly am. Yeah, I have three access points in this house. I have uh, half a dozen that I manage in England for my family, across two or three different you know houses. And, you yeah. know, the, fr from that perspective, having a centralized controller where all of these devices talk back to that runs on Linode is, is for me, very convenient. And so far as I understand it anyway, there is no risk to people who self-host the Unify controller. Right. If, however, you're running one of their cloud keys or a dream machine or something that requires you to authenticate with their cloud, you may well want to change some passwords and possibly even consider, you know, not using ubiquity stuff 
in that manner anymore because, you know, the manner of the breach was that an employee's AWS S3 bucket key was compromised. So we have to assume that the attackers got access to everything. Stored passwords, I mean, they may well be hashed and salted, but we can break passwords with enough compute, you know, um, application logs, databases, uh, database credentials. All of that stuff that's in there, even just IP IP records, it's all bad. It's all really bad, Alex. And that's kind of where I was going with this is I quietly for the last couple of years have been progressively more and more disappointed with Ubiquity. While my friends, like you and others around me, have seemed pretty solid with them, I've been wondering if things haven't been getting a little sour. I don't feel like their latest batch of products have been that solid. I have not liked some of their answers around the controller limitations uh, and some of their solutions, and it just seemed like a power grab in some circumstances. And it seems like this is an indication that not all is well in HQ. The QA has for sure been declining. You know, there's been several firmware upgrades for the actual APs themselves, as well as the controller software that have nuked people's databases and history and stuff like that. So I wonder if maybe just some original people left the company a while ago and it's been in decline or if their prioritization has changed. But where do you go to? Like, what what do you change to? Well, I actually asked Jim on Twitter what he thought, and he's been recommending there's a bunch of TP-Link devices, and uh, Tom from Lawrence Systems just got a bunch in to review on YouTube. So if you're interested in some ubiquity alternatives, they are out there. But I'll tell you what worries me the most about this breach. It's not necessarily that it happened, because unfortunately, these things are going to happen at some point to every company. What matters more is how a company responds, and ubiquity tried to basically cover this up. They didn't deny, I suppose, is more accurate. They didn't deny these claims. Uh, And it took them several days, um, more than a week, to admit responsibility and basically inform their user base that some of their stuff might be boned. Yeah, and on top of that, it seems like it's taken some insiders to come out and leak information to well-known people like Krebs to get the complete picture, which is disappointing. Yeah, I think that I think you just hit the nail on the head there. It's disappointing. I mean, Ubiquity made their name through basically making people realize how crappy consumer grade gear is. And uh, you know, they they're providing Cisco grade ideas and hardware for consumer sort of grade prices. But with these kinds of of breaches and and behavior as a company, I'm I'm struggling. I mean, the access point that I'm looking at behind my monitor here I first installed into a house that I lived three houses ago, uh, six, six, seven years ago. And it's it's not Mr. Beat. It still works perfectly. It's had all the firmware updates and that kind of stuff. But there was that one issue with the controller a few months ago where I ended up having to completely rebuild my Unify controller because of poor software QA. It's critical infrastructure in my house. Okay, It's not a hotel. It's not a commercial setting where a lot of people do deploy Unify gear into. But if it happens to me, it's going to happen to those people as well. And it only takes one or two or three incidents before your your brand name is completely trashed. And people are already talking about just going back to consumer grade stuff like mesh networks like Aero and, you know, all these other, you know, not as technically accomplished solutions that have, you know, POE backhaul and stuff like that in favor of something that is possibly even more leaky because it requires more cloud connectivity. I don't know. Uh, what's the solution? 
I'm probably just going to wait and see how this turns out for the next six months. But my next AP will probably not be a Unify one. Wouldn't it be something if the community stepped forward and built something that we could flash again? Mesh networks be amazing. Oh, it'd be cool. I tell you what, if somehow we could open these devices up, these Unify devices we all already have, and then put like a Tasmota style, completely divorcing ourselves of Unify, of Ubiquity, sorry, uh, you know, own the hardware. I keep banging on about this, don't I? But uh, own the hardware. It's not dependent on a cloud service then. It does seem like that is exactly what we need. It's something we could reflash and load a common OS on that has a common set of standards and interfaces and a web UI, like you used to do with the old Linksys routers. You know, those things are still being sold today, those old Linksys routers. Open WRT, yeah. We just need a newer version of that, something more powerful with different hardware options, essentially like the Ubiquity options. Because you're right, it's you need something that for folks that want to run PoE and and then, you know, plug a plug a AP at the end of a barn somewhere or at the end of a building somewhere and they can only run one cable. Like, you got to have something for that solution. I think your use case, too, where you've got several buildings and you want to manage all of the APs with one interface is also totally legitimate and extremely common. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's so useful when my dad rings me up and he's like, oh, my Wi-Fi is not working in the bedroom. I can go in and see the AP has dropped from gigabit down to megabit, for example. And I've been like, oh, we just need to reboot the, the AP and, and we're good to go. But there's a way to do that, Alex, you know, and get that central dashboard. I know you don't use it much, but uh, something we should talk about at some point on the show, maybe, is Cockpit. One of the things I appreciate about Cockpit is they have come up with a way to allow you to manage multiple servers. You go, to, you can go to one UI, though, log into one, one web server, and you can, man, you can select all your servers and manage them. And it has to be set up in a special way, and there's some security precautions you have to take, but it's it's a very secure setup. And so maybe something like that could be done. I don't know, maybe somebody out there in the community knows. Maybe. So I found out this week that a device I purchased nearly two years ago on some Black Friday sale, you know, I I bought it thinking, oh yeah, this is, this is going to solve all my problems with my fans. Because um, quite often when you buy a server-grade motherboard, the fan control headers are designed for server-grade fans, which spin at crazy high RPMs and draw crazy amounts of, of current and stuff like that. And so when you put a consumer-grade fan on one of these motherboards, it kind of goes uh, ramps up and then ramps down and ramps up and ramps down because it's not getting enough of a signal to think it's got enough RPMs. Anyway, it's this whole thing. So I bought this device called the Corsair Commander Pro. Plugs into a USB header on the motherboard, controls LED lighting, it controls um, fans, and uh, has some temperature probes attached to it. But the downside was this device was Windows only. To my surprise and absolute delight, six months ago, this device has been added to the Linux kernel. There's been a driver added to the Linux kernel. So you can now natively control fans via a USB header on Linux. I love it when that happens. And you're always surprised, like, my little thing, the little thing that I care about, that's coming. That's always the best feeling. So I wrote a small blog post about it. It it doesn't require an awful lot of... uh, elbow grease to get set up but you do need to have the 5.9 or later kernel and then you need to make sure you've got lm sensors installed and then there's a couple of other instructions in the blog post about how you configure the pwm profiles and then once you've done that you just enable the fan control service i mean i'm using a very tiny tiny little arch vm on my esxi host 
Uh, it's I think it's using 256 megs of RAM, for example, and four gigabytes of disk. Perfect use case for Arch because I don't want anything else and I want a modern kernel. And, and that's exactly what Arch gives me there. Linode.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in six-day credit towards a new account. And, of course, you support the show. $100! And that's a lot. You can really try out Linode. And you support the self-hosted podcast. That's like a win-win for everybody. Linode is our cloud server provider. When we're building or any any kind of testing that we're doing, we do it on Linode. And because the price is so great, it makes it possible for a small team to have killer infrastructure. That's one of the things that I feel like is our secret sauce here at JB, is we, we can have access to infrastructure that is crazy fast. 11 data centers around the world really fast network connections, really fast machines. Their dedicated CPU rigs have those AMD Epic CPUs in them, and they have been independently verified as some of the fastest CPUs in cloud computing. But one of the things I think that's great about them is when I'm building or testing something, they have a ton of distributions to choose from. Basically, all the distributions you'd want to deploy, and even some I'm not sure you'd want to deploy in production, Arch, Butter there, and I extremely appreciate that. <laughs> but what I what I really get about Linode is their love for Linux. That's what got them into this. That's why they started in 2003 is because they were in love with the technology itself. They saw where it was going, what virtualization was going to bring to the market. And so they got in before AWS or anyone else. They started so long ago, and yet they don't do like a million things. They're not like a bookstore and a movie platform. They really just focus on doing the absolute best cloud computing possible. And they're independently owned even today. And they're dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Also check a link on our show notes. We'll have a link to their Top Docs talk. That's right, Top Docs talk. And they have one about the benefits of using infrastructure as code. And you know, that's something we're big fans of. So check in the notes for that. Linode.com slash SSH. Go there, support the show, get $100 in 60-day credit. And of course, check out all the features of Linode. Linode.com slash SSH. Well, a few weeks ago, I promised something along the lines of a self-hosted community deep dive. You know, every so often we're going to have somebody from the self-hosted community come on and chat with us and sort of talk about the apps they run, why they run them, you know, what they what they wish that their setup did that it doesn't currently do. And a lot of hopefully discussions about why they made some of the decisions that they made. Hopefully it'll be an interesting portal into some of our community members for you. And the first volunteer or the first uh, glutton for punishment is the orange one from our Discord server. Hey, Jake, how are you doing? Hi. Yeah, I think I feel like maybe the correct term for this is victim. Um, ah, yes, yes. Yes. But yeah, no, it's... It's great. It's great to be here. It's it's going to be good. Well, it's been interesting trying to schedule three different people in three different time zones. So thank you for joining us at, I think, what is 10.30 p.m. UK time? <laughs> yeah, it's 10.30. I've got to be up in nine hours for another seven and a half hours of work. That used to be your life, Alex. Yeah, pre-dad life, huh? Sleep is a distant memory. <laughs> All right, so why don't we dive in with the first question then? And let's talk a little bit about your hardware setup. So specifically talking about the stuff you have at home and things like that. Talk us through some of the stuff you've got there. Most of my setup is at, at home. The sort of self-hosting life is very much, I run everything on on my LAN sort of as normal. Um, most of my setup is a single uh, single machine because 
running things over the network is a bit a bit funky. My main rig is a Ryzen uh, 3000 series, 3700X is the sort of beating heart of it. Yeah, various other parts. It runs Proxmox because virtual machines are great. Do you use VMs for a lot of stuff? Because I know you're into sort of the one big VM. We, we often have this discussion in Discord about the one big VM versus lots of smaller like LXC containers and Docker containers and things like that. What's uh, What's your philosophy on that? If I'm running a hypervisor with VMs, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather have sort of everything nice and containerized to fully uh, take advantage of VMs in their sort of natural habitat of what they're good for. So I think my setup is currently six VMs or so spread most of the different uses. There is still one single LXC container, which runs Docker, which has most of my Docker applications in. There's probably 10 or so containers running under that. Besides that, I've got a separate one for um, my monitoring applications. That would be Prometheus, again, your advice, Grafana. Uh, I've got a separate VM for Home Assistant, which runs Home Assistant OS, couple other ones. One which deals with uh, ingress coming into my house, which is an interesting setup, which I'm sure we'll touch on later. And yeah, various other little things. The other place I've diverted away from what you've previously done is I've also moved the storage out of the one big VM. And so storage is handled directly on the host. Why is that then? The main reason for that is I tried running TrueNAS in a VM. And it, it installed great. It, I could access all my files. The issue was that performance was horrible, absolutely horrible. Mm. Um, I just got latency spikes everywhere. Nextcloud, ground to halt. Uh, SQLite over NFS is a really, really bad time. I don't recommend it to anyone. So talk us through that a little bit more then. You know, uh, performance was, was bad. Were you passing through a disk controller to that VM or, or what were you doing? So from some advice I got from, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was on the self-hosted Discord, uh, suggested using uh, an LSI HPA. That HPA I then passed in through regular PCI pass-through into TrueNAS. From there, uh, regular mounted a very small two-drive ZFS pool exposed via TrueNAS's built-in NFS sharing, which was super easy to do which is great mounted that as normal through etsy fs tab and then from there just pointing my docker containers at it as if it was a directory in that container thing and because it was running entirely over the internal network inside the machine latency wise it was absolutely tiny you're talking like fractions of milliseconds but for some unknown reason it didn't like it. Now that might be because I went a little bit insane and decided to run <laughs> TrueNAS scale rather than TrueNAS directly. So this may be a performance regression with TrueNAS scale because at the time I ran it, it was in alpha and we know full well, don't run alpha software. But I did anyway, just <laughs> to try it. Is, is scale the BSD one and core is, is the Linux one or is it the other way around? I can never remember. Other way around. So scale is the Linuxy one, which at the time was in alpha. So I tried it. It didn't work great. Yes, I, I have some thoughts on BSD this week after the whole uh, 
Wireguard kernel merge thing, but let's let's not derail your. <laughs> yeah, that that's not a fun discussion. It's all embarrassing. After I tried scale out, it it didn't work too well for me, and I didn't want to try uh, porting over to the actual core version of TrueNAS because keeping going with that process it meant I had to deal with issues where that one storage VM as it were would have to stay up and alive sort of all the time and if I needed to reboot that machine that VM even I would have to reboot sort of everything in the entire machine which felt a bit like a faff and eventually I concluded well if I want high performance I want things to be easy then if I move the storage onto the actual host hypervisor under Proxmox, Proxmox has built-in support for ZFS because the OS is on ZFS, so it just works. It means latency is nice and low, and because the majority of my applications live in LXC, there's the nice benefit of rather than using NFS to mount all of my data, I can use bind mounts, and bind mounts are... You have no network latency because it's just passing directories into containers in much the same way that you give bind mounts to Docker containers. There's no extra latency, extra overhead, extra complexity. Around that, it just works. So it sounds like a lot of a lot of different application uses, and it sounds like you have a pretty distinct line between what is a container and what should be a VM. When I see complexity like this, I start to wonder, like, what's your backup strategy looking like? My backup strategy at the moment is on that one Docker LXC, there is a single instance of Duplicati, which backs up because that LXC specifically has access to my entire ZFS pool. I can just take the entire pool, compress it up with Duplicati and push it up to... Currently, there's a mixture of Backblaze and S3 for various bits, depending on how much I care about it. I intend at some point in the maybe not too distant future to switch parts of that out to Restic. Ah, good man. I was just about to ask you about that. <laughs> Duplicati is such a pain in the ass sometimes. And it, it you know, it, it runs fine for weeks and weeks, and then you log in and have a look at it. And in the intervening time, stuff's just broken for seemingly no reason. And it breaks silently. I can only configure it through the UI, which you know how much I love that. So Restic, I think, is something I'm really going to be looking into a lot in the future with uh, Minio, with the S3 backend as well. So you can you can use Restic with that. So you use Backblaze and a little bit of S3. So is that Amazon S3? Uh, yeah. Wow, made of money, boy. <laughs> there's there's like a couple hundred meg in there just because... Oh, okay then. I was testing stuff like this was before when I was only backing up like the tiny bits and I concluded, well, if I'm just backing up the tiny bits, I might as well back up everything. Well, object storage is perfect for that. Exactly. 100%. Let me ask you this then, because I'm, I'm picturing the audience, somebody's out there building their backup strategy right now. If you were going to start again today, start fresh, how would you build it better? What would you do differently? What message would you send to a past version of yourself? The past version would definitely be install backups sooner. Um, I'm very glad that I've never had a, a case where I've had to actually restore from an off-site backup. I had one case where I had to restore from an on-site backup, which I still think is sort of a bug in Docker, where 
I was messing around with some weird Dockery stuff and I went to log into Nextcloud a few hours later and the entire Nextcloud bind mount was empty, completely empty, no app data, no files, no nothing, just gone. I have no idea why it happened. Fortunately, that morning I had done an on-site backup to a disconnected hard drive. So a few hours of syncing files back, I lost, as far as I'm aware, no real data because I'd not made any changes but that that was not fun so definitely anyone listening i think alan jude says it best if it doesn't exist in three places it doesn't exist at all oh you had to go and reference alan huh (laughs) yeah i kind of did but it's also it's such a good point is that now my data exists on my server it also exists using zfs send to a random shucked hard drive sitting on my desk good man and then as well like i say back up to backblaze which has been absolutely great. I did, for a small amount of time, decide, hey, what if I roll my own backblaze? Would not recommend it. Uh, I had a $10 machine from Kim Sufi, which are a very cheap, dedicated server host out of France. They're a subsidiary of OVH, and we all know how OVH are doing right now. Yeah, you hear, I hear their business is on fire at the minute. Oh, Alex. Too soon. <laughs> Too, Too soon, soon mate. Too, Too soon. soon. Hey, I thought it was funny. Yeah, so I tried running that and Minio, and it worked fine. But once I realized that I was backing up a server I owned to a server I owned, it was great, but it was the Kim Sufi box was a bit finicky. It was low-powered. Minio, as tiny as it is, it's much more resource heavy than I would expect it to be. So, should we talk a little bit about some of your favorite self-hosted apps? Top three, maybe? Oh, so I'd have to say the one I definitely use the most is uh, TTRSS, which is an RSS reader, my RSS reader of choice. I do most of my content consumption via RSS. All of my YouTube consumption is entirely via RSS because YouTube's algorithms and suggestions and things like that are just, quite frankly, terrible. That's amazing. I think um, more people should do this because I watched a film the other night called The Social Dilemma, which talks about how insidious those algorithms are in controlling what you see and what you eventually what you think and what you believe, you know, the ultimate conclusion. If anybody's on the fence as to whether, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter and what have you are forces for good in the world or not, uh, I recommend watching The Social Dilemma. It might change your mind. Anyway, as you were. <laughs> That's definitely one for my watch list as well. Um, yeah, so TTRSS is definitely way up there. What clients do you use for that? I actually just entirely use the web UI mostly. Mm, cool. It's easy and it works. Other than TTRSS, I would have to say Nextcloud is currently quite far up there. That's been a really nice tool for just accessing files. It's a little bit heavy for my needs, but it is. the plugins are great. It's fast enough and... The sync clients, when they work, they work really, really well. See, everybody always says this, like, oh, the sync's a bit hit and miss. And I know, Chris, you've had some actual experience with it losing data for you, but I've used it now for, I guess, three years solid. And it's just, Nextcloud's just been really, really reliable for me. So I've only had two issues with it. One is that it doesn't do uh, partial syncs. So if you modify a small part in a very large file, it will sync the entirety of the large file. Mm-hmm. I don't deal with large files, but I suspect if you guys are pushing around very large MP3s or MP4s. uncompressed media, yeah, then 
it can be really, really slow. The other issue I've had, or I did have, which I haven't had in a while, is it would keep forgetting who I am. Oh, no big deal, right? <laughs> I know who I am, but it just forgets and it gets very difficult to sync anything if it just forgets who you are. Uh, it would just keep logging me out. I'd love to see them add land sync too, because that's a fantastic feature when you when you power up a laptop and it hasn't been on the internet for uh, maybe a week or more. If you can sync from other nodes on the network directly, it's way faster and it reduces the demand on your internet connection. I love that feature about Dropbox. Also, I think Dropbox has some intelligence about the order in which they sync files and what operations sync first versus what operations can be queued, where NextCloud's C-Sync subsystem doesn't seem to support that. So we've had situations where the NextCloud server is kind of like processing and syncing down some directory cleanup that we've done. And maybe it's a significant amount of like just reorganizing or something. And the client has to process all of those changes and operate all of those file system operations before it will process the sync command to send the new files up to the server. And so we've literally just had editors on the other side waiting for files. And so that stunk. But what we did is we just changed the way we operate. We don't make those kinds of changes on any kind of show day anymore. We, you know, we wait and we make sure we do it like with a couple of day buffer and we've adjusted the way we operate and it's, we've made it work now. We've been using it for, uh, I mean, I don't know, Alex, do you remember since the, since the sprint in 2019, right? Yeah. Since, since I appeared. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah. Right. Since we brainstormed and started this show. <laughs> so, and, and, uh, it's been running, but yeah, it isn't ideal. So what's your last pick then? It's a project I've been involved with a little bit in sort of contributing and writing content for, uh, which is probably also going to be a bit of a sore subject for some people. Uh, it's an application called Plausible. Plausible is a self-hosted Google Analytics alternative. It's backed by a company. There's a hosted offering. It's really, really nice. The UI is beautiful. It's fully GDPR compliant, so it only tracks the data that it needs to do to do its job. It doesn't track things around various other places. It's entirely self-hosted. So I run my own instance, which tracks my own websites. It doesn't track anything else. And so what that means is I can see which pages are getting the most traction, which ones aren't, where people are coming from. And that's about it. That looks great. Yeah, really nice. It's really nice. I highly recommend it to anyone that's got a website, especially if they're running... Google Analytics and want to sort of take back some of their control from Google and various other companies like that. Uh-oh, ding dong, he said it. <laughs> take back control. My That's a trigger phrase for me. <laughs> something, something Brexit. Anyway. Ugh. Says the guy who's immigrated to the States to the guy who's still over there. Incredible. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-oh, awkward. One final question for you, though, Jake, and it's the one that everybody's been waiting for. It's the how many terabytes on your land question. Oh, yeah. Oh, so this is going to be an interesting one. I'm going for the opposite record to what people are probably expecting um, to have from guests on here. I'm going for the lowest result possible. So my current pool has four terabytes in. Wow. I love this idea because why the headache if you don't need it, right? It's two four terabyte Seagate drives. They've been working pretty well for my use case. There's only 200 gig on the pool. So I've got ample storage space. I've got ample space to grow. 
it's been working absolutely flawlessly. There is an additional single six terabyte drive, which currently houses all of my media. I need to get that into a pool of some kind as quick as possible because I can <laughs> see Alex's face physically pained as I say that. Perfectmediaserver.com. Yeah, I know where to go. It's <laughs> MotorFS, SnapRaid are two things yeah. reasonably high up on my list of things to do when I get a free second. But yeah, four terabytes is exactly just about enough for my needs and I don't really have any intention of growing that anytime soon. So I'm sticking right here at the bottom of the list so far. Okay, well, there's no shame in that. I mean, you could be like the Michael Gambon of uh, terabytes, huh? Uh, that's an old Top Gear reference for some people that don't know what I'm talking about. So thanks very much for coming on, Jake. It was really nice to talk to you. And please let us know from from the audience, like if, number one, you would like to be, you know, one of these community spotlights that we're going to do, what you thought of the uh, segment, let us know as well. If it's something you'd like to see us do more of, let us know. If it's something you didn't like, well... Maybe keep that opinion to yourself. Wow. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send people, Jake, you know, Twitter or your a personal blog that I know you write a lot of? Yeah, I believe you described me as a, quote, prolific blogger. And many people who hang on the Discord know I write quite a lot. Uh, my website is theorangeone.net, which I'm sure will be in the show notes. Uh, my Twitter account as well is at realorangeone, which I suspect as well will be in the show notes. Well, Jake, thank you. A quick thank you to CloudGuru for sponsoring this episode, and I'd like you to know about their PowerShell Core for Linux Admins course. It's an intermediate-level course, and it teaches you the concepts of using PowerShell Core with Linux. This could be game-changing if you're in a multi-platform environment. And the course includes, of course, administration, installing Docker, working with a SQL server, even managing Azure instances, as well as integrating it all with Visual Studio Code. There's a lot there, so you'll have to click the link in our show notes. That'll be at selfhosted.show slash 42, and you'll see the PowerShell core for Linux admins course. And thanks to a cloud guru for sponsoring this episode. And of course, a big thanks to our members over at selfhosted.show slash SRE. You can go there to support the show and get a limited ad feed. We often talk as well in the post show about some little knickknacks in our lives and things that are going on. Uh, so you get a little bonus show, a little bonus extra content. Yeah, selfhosted.show slash SRE. And you can also find the contact page at selfhosted.show slash contact. That's the place to get in touch with us. I'm on Twitter as well. You can get me there. I'm at Chris LAS. And I'm there at Ironic Badger. And don't forget the show at selfhosted show. So thanks for listening, everyone. That was selfhosted.show slash 42.